This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. Welcome to Sparks and Wiry Cries. The interview today is with composer, librettist, writer, and all-around Renaissance man Herschel Garfine. Herschel's music will come together with the poetry of Donald Hall to create the Song Cycle Mortality Mansions, premiered on our Casement Fund song series, March 30th, 2017, in partnership with Columbia University's Department of Narrative Medicine and their Heyman Center for the Humanities. Herschel Garfine's opera of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, based on the Tom Stoppard play, will receive its piano-vocal staged premiere this summer at the Siegel Music Colony in the Adirondacks. He wrote and directed My Coma Dreams for composer-pianist Fred Hirsch, available on Palmetto DVD. Garfine also won the 2012 Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Classical Composition for his wildly operatic libretto uh, from Robert Aldridge's Elmer Gantry, available on Noxos. His songs and other works are available on Noxos, Roven Records, and the GPR label. Throughout the interview, we often referenced specific poems of Donald Hall, one of which, Death Work, can be found in his book of poems, The Painted Bed. The other poem mentioned quite a bit is Gold, found in his book, White Apples and the Taste of Stone. And now on to the interview. I'm at the home of composer Herschel Garfine, where he has uh, been so generous as to allow me to speak with him this afternoon about his newest song cycle, Mortality Mansions, set to the poems of Donald Hall. Hi, Welcome. Mark. Hi. It's great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me. So my first question is really simple. Um, why song? What is it about song that interests you? That's actually a very good question. Um, I can't say that I was always a great um, proponent of art song, or at least I was so in love with certain examples from the past that I really hesitated to do my own. Um, specifically, Schubert and Schumann, I guess nothing very original there, but those pieces really stand in my mind as being among the great pieces, the pieces that have, the mo have had the most effect on me as a composer um, in my entire life. And, um, and so my actual approach to art song over the course of my career as a composer has been, I would say, maybe a little hesitant, really. And what changed? Well, I guess the reason that, the reason that I hesitated was that um, I, my ear is very attuned to um, to language, and because I'm a writer too, I, I have I'm sort of unique in that I I often write lyrics for other composers, and I'm I'm sometimes better known as a librettist than I am as a composer, although I never consider myself primarily a librettist, but primarily a composer. So, because I'm very attuned to um, to um, to words and to the way that words are delivered. I mean, I work a lot in the theater, and so I'm used to a certain kind of um, of utter believability in the way that I want to hear words spoken. And um, in American art song, I guess I honestly don't always hear that level of 
communication of the words that I would want. So let me just be blunt about it. A lot of art song strikes me as being too, um, too precious. It's, uh, it's sort of, I hate it when it proclaims itself to be something special and very apart from ordinary life and that you're going to witness some exalted event. And, and I, from the time that I was a student in conservatory, I, it, would, it would kind of give me the creeps. You'd go to a, an art song recital and the person would stand there kind of posing unnaturally in front of the piano. And then if they were singing in English, what came out of their mouths didn't sound to me much like the English that I recognized. Do you think that has to do with more with the performers and less with the music? I do. I think it has to do with a performance tradition, though. And I yeah. think it has to do with a lot of the way that, that singers are trained. And, you know, um, we recently had the, the privilege of presenting uh, these songs from Mortality Mansions to Donald Hall, the poet himself, in New Hampshire. And uh, I was working with a couple of great artists, um, um, tenor Michael Slattery and pianist Dimitri Dover. But we actually got into an argument in the car on the way back because we were talking about American English and how it's sung. And I was, I was proclaiming the, the virtues of, of, of singing English the way you speak it. For example, yeah, yeah, really colloquial. And also, I, for example, a small but important thing is you really have to embrace the schwa. Because, you know, I mean, Germans, when you look at German language and if you, as an outsider and you see all those crazy hard consonants and the way that those words are put together, you would say, oh, well, that's unsingable. You could never sing that. But of course, there's a huge, kind of tremendous German tradition of art song and they made all those things expressive and beautiful. And I think we should do the same thing with American English. So in a word, I think that those kinds of considerations... Um, Tended to, I tended to keep art song a little bit at arm's length because of that. And so then, if language and the way it's sung is of the utmost importance to you, um, what do you look for when you are looking for texts? Well, when I started off, I looked for unconventional texts and prose texts and um, and I would when I couldn't find the right sort of thing I wrote them for myself that's really how I became a lyricist at all um, was I, I had some f commissions to fulfill that I thought should be um, vocal music of one sort or another and I I couldn't find anything that I wanted to set so I wrote it for myself um, and um, and then as I started to make my peace with, you know, the world of poems and poetry and looking for those sorts of things, I guess I could only really be happy. I mean, I love a lot of a lot of American poetry, but I, I, I could only be happy with things that I felt were um, sufficiently straightforward and where the poet wasn't showing off and where it sounded like if I imagined a singer singing it, it sounded to me in my ear like, a real person, somebody you might actually know, who would who is the, the words are being transformed and elevated through the medium of art song, but they're not being sort of kept from the audience or not being enshrined in front of the audience. So it sounds to me also like your musical language would also follow that direction as well. Yeah, I hope it does. I, I think of myself increasingly as as um, sort of crossing over between um, 
between classical music and blank, all other kinds of music that interest me, and especially all kinds of American vernacular music. And I really try to, I really um, increasingly feel very, very comfortable um, in, in that kind of terrain, in between the classical and the popular. I mean, certainly to me, um, when I had the great privilege of, of hearing that performance that you, you did um, in New Hampshire, what I heard was lyricism, openness, accessibility, inventiveness, um, and really attention to detail in the text. And so I guess my, my next question is, sort of really about those things. What is the process for you of setting the text? What do you look for in the poetry? Are you looking for specific words, vowels, consonant clusters, or something like that, that, that gives you an idea of how to shape a phrase or begin a phrase? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that I look for those things in a poem, because I think if, if, if you open a book of poetry and those kinds of things jump out at you from the page, then I think the poem is grossly overworked. Um, what I really responded to, for example, in the work of, of uh, Donald Hall, was its, its kind of unfussed quality. The fact that he uses language very, very simply, but very, very expressively. And, and by the way, in my work as a librettist, I, I think of myself as, as trying to do that all the time. When, when it comes time to find words for characters to say or to sing, because I've written some... Um, some non-sung dramas too. Uh, when it comes to finding those words, I, um, I guess what I'm always looking for is, is moments of what I think of as, as inadvertent poetry. When, when a character is just expressing themselves in the simplest possible way, but it still comes out beautifully. And we all experience this all the time in, in daily life, where somebody just says something just functional in a way in life, and yet it comes out so beautifully or perfectly or with a kind of a, 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 a deeper connotation. And, um, you know, you can't sort of fake that stuff. It has to, if you can't try to put that stuff in. You just have to kind of chance upon it and recognize it when you see it. So would you be interested in art song created in a more operatic way, meaning that you would be working actively with a poet? Or do you want, or would you be looking at? I'm not sure. You know, I guess this is awful to say, but I, I don't trust too many people to write lyrics for music since I do it myself. Um, so there may, you know, um, there may be a, a great poet that, um, that I, I wouldn't really want to run afoul of them by, by working with them, you know? Um, the, the great thing with, with Don Hall's poems is that they really jumped off the page at me. I mean, they're just, they're so uh, exquisitely simple and they're so, um, they're so illuminating of, of the human condition. I mean, his poems about, about well, about sex is, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that. I think they're, they're, they're absolutely extraordinarily good um, about, about love, about loss and and bereavement and recovery from those things there you know he deals with these really you know really significant subjects but always in this in this pellucid language and you never feel like he's he's um he's showing off he's never 
he's never sort of throwing words out there to to uh, to um, you know to draw attention to himself. So okay, one of the one of the works that I was the most moved by was um, the poem "Death Work." Yeah. Um, and that to me, I'm sort of interested in how you created anxiety in the repetition, um, in the way that you set the text, in the way that the poem looks on the page, and all of that that stuff. Um, can you talk a little bit about that piece in particular? Yeah, of course. And um, I guess I should have said, in, in general terms, one of the things that I'm also really a- attracted to in Donald's work is I think that it's very, it's very active, you know, and um, because... I work so much in the theater. I always feel like everything I create is, in a certain sense, theatrical. Um, this death work is a great example of that. Um, but I think all of his poetry has that quality of of um, of uh, a- action and sort of psychological action just beneath the surface of the poem. So, in the case of death work, it's uh, the protagonist, and I, I I don't think of it as being. Donald Hall. I mean, of course, it's written from a biographical perspective on his part, but that's not what drew me to it. Um, so I think of the protagonist as as going through an agonizing period, either where, where his loved one either has just died or is on the verge of death. And, you know, he literally doesn't know what to do with himself. And so there's this tremendous undercurrent of, um, I mean, anxiety doesn't even do it justice. It's mm. just agony. It's an undercurrent of agony. Uh, and yet, the surface of it is um, is 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 the simplest possible series of sort of reminders to himself, or 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 sort of orders to himself on what he should do just to get through the day. And I find it incredibly moving. Again, it's it's a good example of what I mean by by a very active poem, because there's a there's a a, a tremendously important subtext beneath the words on the page. Wake when dog whimpers, prick finger, inject insulin, glue teeth in, smoke cigarette, shudder and fret, feed old dog, bright syllabic. Boston Globe, drink coffee, eat bagel, read at nervous speed, smoke cigarette, never forget to measure oneself against job. Turn out 
Michael Slattery, tenor, and Dimitri Dover in an early reading of the song Death Work from Herschel Garfine's cycle Mortality Mansions. What I heard was a repetitive um, motive that you began the song with and that sort of followed all the way through. Um, how did you come up with that? What is your process for that when you... I think I'm really I think I'm sort of interested in hearing about the compositional process for you. Sure. Um, well, because again, because of my grounding in theater, I um, I always think of the sort of the psychological reality of the character or the, the, the person singing before anything. So the first consideration is is I try to sort of know what that state is or what that what the action of the poem is. And um, in this case, I think, it's, I think it's trying to obliterate the agony of, this, of the, the loved one's death through, uh, through sort of busy work, through just trying to keep yourself busy instead of, you know, breaking down and, and screaming. And of course, there is the one moment in the poem where, um, where I do have him virtually scream when he comes to this amazing line, um, wait for the fucking moon. And uh, there's a case where I think that, uh, I'll say in, in all humbleness, I may not have succeeded in this, but I do think that there's a case where music can actually um, expand upon the, the, um, the expression inherent in the poem. So uh, when, when, when I heard Don read it, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't howl that line out, but that's the way I heard it in my in my head. I, uh, that in a moment, that moment is where, to me, the the guys, the the protagonist guys of of self control, and this pretense of busying himself to avoid the agony fails him, and he does. He just he screams at that point. I mean, it's such a moving moment. I think in the poem, but in the song especially, it. Um... I think silence is such a, a useful tool in that case, right? Afterwards, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you have to you have to recover from that, and I sort of again because I I think theatrically, I I, I always time everything out in a sense, um, in a way that I might think of it happening in life, or at least happening on stage. And so after that outburst, 
there are sort of a couple of little shudders in the piano as the protagonist recovers from that outburst because any kind of violent physical outburst like that sets you back a bit and uh, and of course the protagonist of this of the, of this whole cycle is uh, is at least 60 years old that's very important to me and so he does have to recover from that and then that that awful self-imposed routine of his comes back in with that with that repeated figure in the piano that you that you um that you um referred to can you speak about the the cycle then as a whole what is is there a through line what were you what what is the conception because i know you you pulled poems from different parts of his writing at times different times of his life um how did you do that? What were you creating in that context? Well, interestingly, I didn't really set out to write a song cycle, although I've longed to write one for a long, for, for many, many years because of my regard for the, the, the two great Schubert ones, the, the Schöne Müllerin and um, the Winterreise, and also Schumann's um, Dichterliebe. Um, but I was, I was simply drawn to, to a, a certain number of poems, and there were some others that I didn't end up including in this, in this cycle. Um, and I, as you say, I drew them from different parts of his body of work. Um, and then, I guess in thinking about how beautifully and incisively he writes about sex and sexual love, and especially sexual love in people over 60, which is not something that anybody really talks about. And I'm getting there myself. I'm, I'm approaching 60 myself. So I, I felt it was really important to, um, to sort of come to terms with that. And um, you'll, you, he, he himself pointed this out to me. And I, of course, noticed it too, that the word young occurs in three of these poem titles. But... Um, um, in order to convey its opposite, I mean, there's uh, when the young husband, when I was young, the young watch us, and then of course there's quite a bit about dying as well. Um, so, in 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 that use is, I think it's. Am I right in saying that sometimes it's about setting up a juxtaposition? It's not necessarily about exactly. youth. Exactly. He's not young. The, the protagonist yeah. is not young anymore, and he's in some cases looking back on his youth, but. But it's very much, uh, an, you know, a, an older protagonist, someone around 60 or over 60. And um, I guess what, what I think of it as overall is I think of it as being about sexual love as a sort of uh, hedge against death, as a sort of hedge against mortality. And the way that one, one can use it that way, and even though it's, an illusory use because anything is an illusion compared to death. Nothing is going to work, but it's still a sort of um, a grand and a noble and a meaningful illusion. And um, and so I I was thrilled when when um, I came up, uh, came upon the what became the title of my poem. One I was calling it. I was calling the cycle something else. And then one night in the middle of the night, I literally sat up in bed and thought of the last line of this poem when I was young. And he says, let us celebrate lust in mortality mansions. And I thought, oh, that's the title. It has to be mortality mansions. Um, 
And then I was really pleased to see how, in arranging the poems in a certain kind of order, and, uh, and at that point I probably pulled some new poems into the group, that I was able to fashion a, really a story from beginning to end that satisfied me and that did become a song cycle, even though I hadn't intended it that way. It does end on a positive note, though, right? In, in a sense, with the final poem of gold. Or at least, if it's not positive, a kind of um, final, there is a finality in a sense that you've created. Yeah, no, I, defi I actually definitely think it's positive. I, I don't think that um, uh, Don himself didn't necessarily see it that way, but I, because of the circumstances or, what, or his own thinking about the poem gold. But I think in the way that I placed it, I think it's, it definitely is, um, is positive. A certain kind of redemption comes at the end. Um, it, here's kind of, uh, sort of an interesting note about the cycle as a whole. I, I really like, I like starting big pieces, whether it's a song cycle or it's an opera or it's any kind of large scale piece. I like to start them immersively. I like the audience to be placed immediately into a very active situation um, without necessarily knowing where they will be taken thereafter. And uh, so, for example, last year I had performed a, a, a set of songs. I won't call it a song cycle now because it's not compared to this one, but I had a, a set of songs on, um, on William Blake poems done and uh, by an excellent mezzo named uh, Jennifer Rivera, and, and she did it at uh, Barge Music with Myra, Myra Wang playing piano. And um, She recorded that, didn't she? She did, yeah. yes, and it's out on, uh, on, on disc too. And um, in that case, I began with... Um, uh, the, 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 the set was called The Divine Image, and it's about sort of a, a, a commitment to higher things in life, enduring things in life. But I began that, that cycle with Blake's famous poem, The Tiger, 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 Burning Bright, which I, I did in a very, very um, aggressive or, let's say, propulsive sort of setting so that I had the, the gratifying feeling that I was plunging the audience into this kind of chaotic world and they had to make their own way, at least through that first song. And then everything began to clarify and I think that that set proceeded in a fairly straight line from the second song onwards to the last. And I do some of, something of the same thing, perhaps even a little bit um, more cleanly in Mortality Mansions, in that I think of When the Young Husband as being this immersion into, again, a very active setting. It's, it's a, a person of around 40 um, um, about to undertake an affair with a friend's wife, and he's picked her up in the taxi, and suddenly there's a traffic jam. And at the moment of this traffic jam, his mind starts wandering uh, into the sort of far reaches of this sexual fantasy he has about this young woman. And uh, it begins to take on an aspect of dread as well. And it lasts through these, these, it's a very highly articulated fantasy, as you know. And he starts going, in, going sort of nuts in the, in this, um, in the anticipation of what he's going to do. And then, and then the, the wonderful last ending of the poem is that the, the, um, the traffic jam stops and, um, and the, um, the taxi starts moving and his, his fantasy ends. Uh, the, um, I just want to read the last line here. It's so great. Yeah, so after all of this, he says, prophecy stopped, traffic started. 
and that's the end of the poem. So it is. It's, the prophecy is really of the destruction of family. That's right. So here's the here's the amazing thing about this fantasy that the protagonist has in this poem. Of course, it all starts off with the the fun and exciting sexual fantasy. Um, he says, this this prophetic voice that speaks in his mind's ear says. The misery you undertake this afternoon will accompany you to the end of your lives. So it's prophetic and it's rather dire. But then it gets into all that he's planning to do to seduce this young woman. Cocktails, an omelet, wine, the revelation of a room key, the elevator rising as the penis elevates, the skin flushed, the door fumbled at, the handbag dropped, the first kiss with open mouths, etc., etc. And then the fantasy sort of goes off the rails and um, and it's all the horrible things that he that he sees, um, all the all the ways in which he might be throwing his life away in his view by undertaking this affair. So he he gets to um, his small children abandoned and inconsolable, and later sleepless in a bare room, whiskey, meth, cocaine, new love essayed in loneliness with miserable strangers that comfort nothing but skin. Hours with sons and daughters, studious always to maintain distrust. In other words, every possible thing it's is extreme. Yeah, every possible thing is going wrong in this in this in his life, and all leading back to that one. All point. leading back to that really casual little thing where suddenly the the prophecy stops and the traffic starts, and he's obviously going to go go ahead and 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 um, you know sleep with this young woman. So, um. The interesting thing is that that Donald Hall went through this period in his life as a poet where he did these sort of little commentaries on his own poems. He would publish a couple of additional stanzas at the end of a poem which um, which cast some light, usually a sort of self-effacing or disparaging light on some of the conceits of the poem that he originally wrote, as if he was looking back a few years later and sort of, you know... Um, you know, as they say in England, taking the piss out of himself a little bit, like, like sort of bringing himself down to to uh, to earth. But anyway, when he he po he published one of these little addenda in in his in his great collection, White Apples and the Taste of Stone. When when he when he published this this version of When the Young Husband, he added this little addendum to it, and he says in this addendum. Or say, why this whining? You liked your nookie well enough back when you had your teeth. Agreed, you enjoyed the performance of rage and disloyalty as much as orgasm. So that line really struck me, and I suddenly understood what this prophecy which was, was about. And it seemed to me so true and so subtle and interesting an observation of, of human nature, which is that in a case like that, when you start having that sort of fantasy... It may start in the in the pleasurable and and entirely erotic realm, and then when it goes into these these dire and dark realms of of what you're doing to yourself, the thing is that that's actually part of the pleasure. That's what's so crazy about it. That becomes part of what's alluring about what you think you're doing. That's why the protagonist in the poem goes way off the rails. I mean, all these these things are not really going to happen. He he's not going to become a meth addict because of one affair, and you know his children aren't going to abandon him, and you know none of this stuff is really going to happen. It's part of the allure of the forbidden. That's all prompted by this you know girl sitting next to him in a taxi heading for this hotel. Um, 
And so I, I, I had no sense that I would, I did not want to uh, actually set these last few paragraphs. And I, early on, I wrote Don and asked him permission, his permission to omit these few paragraphs of commentary. But having read them, I understood in a way that I would never otherwise have understood what that prophetic voice is doing. And so then I, I tried to inform my setting of it with that. And it made it a lot more fun to write. And um, so it was that it, it's like um, being in the director, in a sense, being the director of a, of a play and, and suddenly understanding from a play, the playwright's comment what he meant by the subtext of a whole big, complicated scene and suddenly gives you the key to the whole thing. And then you, you know what to do with it musically. That's wonderful. And I love that the thrill exists on both sides of the equation, really. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I only really have one more question, but uh, during the performance that we heard um, for Donald Hall in New Hampshire, you mentioned that you try to acknowledge line breaks in the poetry when it's clear that even though the meaning flows over the break from one line to the next, yeah. can you talk about this just a little bit and also maybe speak about other things uh, if you if they come to mind that you do technically to shape your music to the poetry? Oh, yes. I, I, have you got all day? Because sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is so important to me and um, it was incredibly gratifying to me to have... Um, poems like these of, of Donald Hall's to work with because while I initially in this interview I stressed how how simple and straightforward they were they're also you know technically perfect they're just they're they're real marvels in that way of combining simplicity and utter you know um, communicability with some very very deft uh, smart smart you know writing um, so, yeah, line endings, extremely important. I, um, I, I come to my regard for line endings in a kind of unusual way, I have to say. And that is that, um, you know, before I was ever a, um, a composer, I was an actor. And um, like many young actors, I, have, I had and I still have a very, very high regard for Shakespeare. I mean, I think the greatest artist that ever lived in any medium. And... But as a young actor, you're often grappling with how you do Shakespeare. And I can't, I can't say, I wish I could say that I, 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 I managed to, to do him well, but I, would, I was in some Shakespeare scenes and things like that as a young actor and really grappled with how do you get, how do you, how do you make those words both be natural coming out of your mouth and sound like you're a person and not an orator and, and still um, respect the poetry, um, and I can't. I didn't solve it at the time, but many years later, I was um, fortunate to be able to work with uh, Sir Peter Hall, the Royal Shakespeare Company. I did um, incidental music for a production of his in New York, and I went to all of the rehearsals, even though I wasn't, my attendance wasn't necessary at these rehearsals, and I just watched how he worked with the actors, and it's extremely important in the work of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and he was one of the founders of that company, their approach to Shakespeare is predicated on a strict observance of line endings. Even when it's a, they might be thought at first glance to uh, impede a natural delivery of the text. So I'll give you an example here from um, 
from one of Donald Hall's poems. In the poem Woolworths, the, um, the, the line endings are all very, very straightforward with one exception. And that is in the, in the second complete stanza. The, the poem begins with a single line and then there are regular stanzas of several lines length. And in the, um, I'm sorry, in the first complete stanza, there's one word on the end of a line that's sort of out of place. The second stanza goes like this. Daisies made out of resin, hairnets and motor oil, Barbie dolls, green garden chairs, and 41 brands of deodorant. So it's a straightforward list. And uh, so the naturalistic actor, if this were a line of Shakespeare, it's not. But, you know, if you were trying to say this on stage, you'd say the list. Daisies made out of resin, hairnets and motor oil, Barbie dolls, green garden chairs, and 41 brands of deodorant. But that, that word green, he knew what he was doing when he put that at the end of a line. And it's the only such word in the whole poem that doesn't actually belong where it's placed. So there's something going on there, and one has to pay attention to that. And I was very pleased when I heard Don Hall read this poem uh, in New Hampshire. We had never talked about it, but he, he did, in fact, put a little bit of a pause after the word green, and I respected that in my setting, too, because I'm, I'm very attentive to line endings. And um, So look here, one way to think of it is, the actor in me can't help but thinking of it this way. You're looking around this Woolworths at all the various things, and it's the greenness of these things that captures you before you even know what they are. So you're looking around and you say, daisies made out of resin, hairnets and motor oil, Barbie dolls, green garden chairs, and 41 brands of deodorant. And I'm sure that he wasn't thinking of it that way. He probably thought of it as that wonderful vowel, that green coming out of nowhere and being slightly anticipating it's the object that it's attached to. But either way, I think that you have to find a reason and a, a, an artistic necessity for, um, for observing line endings. And I would then, I guess, go further and say that you have, you've written it into your composition, but then it matters how the performers treat that subject as well or the singers, even though the rhythm is inherent in what you're writing. Can you talk just a little bit, switching gears, about the two performers that you chose and why you chose them? And um, we'll probably leave it there at the end. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah I know exactly why I chose them. Uh, I had worked a little bit with Michael Slattery in the past. Um, uh, the, the great jazz composer and pianist Fred Hirsch and I wrote a song for Michael called Ordinary. So Fred did the music and I did the lyrics. And, um, and that was part of an album called An AIDS Quilt Songbook, Sing for Hope. Uh, and Michael performed it live a few times and he recorded it on the album. And I was really struck. That was my first time working with Michael. And I was really struck by his ability to bring to vocal performance many of these qualities that, that I was telling you I look for and don't always find in, um, in art song, a, an absolute clarity and a really, really simple relationship to the text and, um, and a great deal of emotion underneath that, but not forced emotion, truly felt emotion, which I think 
the audience feels as well. Um, so in other words, all in all, just a, a kind of beautiful, artful simplicity in the way that he sings. Um, and then I heard Michael and, and the pianist, Dimitri Dover, do this, um, this Poulenc cycle uh, in Brooklyn as part of Brooklyn Art Song Society, um, this cycle called Tel Jour, Tel Nuit, which is fantastic. And honestly, I had not known it um, before they did it, but it's, um, it's surrealist poems. So there's a, there's a challenge there, but I thought that they both, they, they penetrated to the heart of these things and made them, instead of making them just odd or, or um, opaque, I felt they made them extremely real and extremely simple. And, uh, and I was sold on them. And I, I think I approached them immediately after that concert and talked to them about this song cycle. Well, I'm so grateful that you have spoken with me today. Thank you so much for your wonderful words. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Martha. Thank you all for listening. I'm your host, Martha Guth. Our stupendous podcast producer is none other than the wickedly talented Matthew Principe. Tune in next time for the last podcast of our season, an interview with revered and wonderful tenor, George Shirley.